Oh, uh, before we start, guys, just one thing, if you can promise me one thing during this. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want this to be stock. Yeah. I want it to be a good episode. <laughs> I don't want it to be stock. I don't either. Listeners, welcome to a new episode of a free podcast. I'm your co-host, Rob, joined as always by my good friends, Joe and Duff. What's up? Give me fuel, give me fire, give me a podcast I desire. <laughs> and uh, we are... That's we the have a- thing I've ever heard of my life. <laughs> I love it. I loved it. Uh, I, uh, uh, we have a new season on Rock Docs. We're talking about Metallica, some kind of monster. Joe... Explain this to us. What are we yeah, doing I just here? Miss, uh, I just miss going to shows, man. Mm-hmm. And I, I and I, I like talking about music. And uh, let's just this is as close as we can get. Just <laughs> let's just yeah. talk about rock and roll. Let's talk about uh, self-important, uh, out of touch people mm-hmm. getting mad at each other. <laughs> and like, and it's one of my favorite genres of things, right? It's it's wild how much rock and roll and that genre of things overlap. <laughs> just I I think like I've just as we go into the waning days of 2020, I think that the only salve for these troubling times is just dipping into a deep pool of dumb guy energy, and I I had faith that this film would deliver that, and for the most part it delivers. I think. Yeah, so and, when, and, and when it this. doesn't, it's surprisingly earnest <laughs> yeah I, I actually that's why i said it, it kind of does because i my I, I didn't really come away from this movie uh i didn't really get it it impacted me differently than i thought it would have i guess i'll put it that way okay so anyways yeah. i just wanted to talk about music i just wanted to talk about music which is a nice throwback to a uh, friend of the show's dennis his famous quote when he mm-hmm. almost got beat up by bikers <laughs> i just want to talk about bikes after he had, wasn't he drunk and had knocked over someone's motorcycle? No, no, he just oh, tried okay. to sit on it. Are you thinking oh, okay. of? Are you thinking of? Uh, are you thinking of Pee Wee Herman? I think I am thinking yeah, of Pee Wee Herman. Herman. <laughs> yeah, I get those two mixed up all the time. Well, they yeah, they have a lot in common. Um, yeah. So if you're a Metallica fan, uh, you are in the right place. If you are not a Metallica fan, I think you will still find this interesting. I think you're still in the right. If you're a Metallica hater, you're in the right place too. Yes. Yeah. I, I actually thought um, we'll get to the summary more, but one thing I, I kind of appreciated about this doc is um, I feel like it, you, if someone doesn't know anything about Metallica, it's a different and interesting way to give them an overview of a band rather yeah. than like your typical like, right, you know, this sort of like intertwines it with this, this it's, these therapy sessions. It's a good way to like look at their history because their history has so much like pain and loss in it. And the, I guess the ultimate goal of the whole film or the, the, the time period chronicled in the film is for them to try to find that feeling again and that artistic inspiration again. Well, also, you know, not being stock. If, <laughs> if, if you knew nothing about Metallica and watched this, it's interesting because it kind of gives a sense of how big Metallica were, but not 
it doesn't revel in it, which I think is a good choice. I mean, it talks it just, about it. You know, it meant it has a title card that Metallica was the biggest North American concert draw, and they've and the they night. sold ninety million records, yeah. which is wild. But but after that, like you you do you don't really get the the fan worshiping, which is good. I think it really just kind of becomes intimate after that. Yeah, I think the best thing about it. And, and I guess we should also just talk about the... We haven't really even talked about the concept of the documentary. But before, I guess, we, we dive into that, I think the best thing about it is it, it doesn't have any, like, talking heads coming in to talk about why they're a big deal or why they matter. It'll just briefly just drop in these little factoids from, like, title cards from the filmmakers or something to talk about their significance yeah. and their commercial impact. Right. But you don't have to listen to, like... You know, them, see them cut to Chuck Klosterman or something talking about why Metallica matters or something like that. So before we get into a summary, I think, you know, this is a very personal documentary, so I think it's only fair if we tell our own Metallica stories, right? Yeah. So, um, Duff, you know, I consider you... I consider you um, the rock and roll expert and sometimes... Mm-hmm. Um, what is what is your Metallica relationship? Uh, part of, I had um, a couple of Metallica albums in high school, and I was I would say a pretty big Metallica fan. But in retrospect, I feel like, and I'm sure this is the same case for a lot of people. A lot of it was just like that's what you're supposed to do when you're a dumb teenage lunkhead. Mm-hmm. You're kind of programmed to like Metallica. Um, that said, I remember having "And Justice for All" on tape, uh, and I had the Black Album, "Master of Puppets," and uh, me and my dumb friends had a terrible cover band and would play. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Uh, we would play. Uh, Whichever, like, we would play the Metallica songs we were talented enough to learn. <laughs> like, okay. We so were not near. Like, Black Album and later? Yes. Yeah. Uh, we did learn For Whom the Bell Tolls. Um, oh, but wow. yeah. Yeah. Um, not talented enough to learn, like, uh, Battery or something like that. <laughs> um, I saw Metallica in concert in, I want to say late, it was like late 1999 or early 2000. Isn't um, didn't you tell me once about this and that Kid Rock opened for them or something like yeah, that? Yeah, you just stole my thunder, man. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, there, a co- there's a couple things I remember about that show. I don't remember Metallica's performance itself. I think it was good. Um, <laughs> did you the, but, get too drunk or something? Well, the open. I mean, the opener was uh, like you said, uh, Seven Dust and then Kid Rock. Oh man. And Kid Rock stage show. This was before Joe C passed, so Joe C was. <laughs> He had like go-go dancers and cages. Uh, Senator Rock's cruise. That's what that's like too. I think, isn't it? It was the most boobs I ever saw at a concert. Like, this is the the Target Center, uh, like my junior year of high school. Then the last thing I remember about that show is uh, I think it was it's probably like during Seven Dust or between Kid Rock and Metallica. I went to the the bathroom and this. Uh, very drunk woman who probably saw Metallica for the first time in like the Ride the Lightning tour came in <laughs> and she just like drunkenly saunters into the uh, men's 
restroom at the Target Center. I was like, women's line is too long, so I'm going in here. And then just like mounts up on a sink. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> That's and uh, starts to urinate in the sink. That seems like more of like a state fair energy. Ride the faucet. I, <laughs> I mean, the Metallica at the Target Center was very much a state fair energy. Cool. Wow. Um, I, 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 my, my parents weren't really into music or especially rock and roll that much. It wasn't like I lived in a household where it you was were like a, you were a country boy. Yeah, and it's not like I lived in a household where, like, rock was shunned, but, like, I'm an only child, so, like, it's not like I had an older, you know, sibling to be like, hey, check out this. Um, so I think it was in, like, late middle school. Metallica was, like, the first rock band that I loved. Like, that was the first rock band where I was like, I'm collecting all their records. I had all their CDs. I would listen to them all the time. And similar to what Duff said when you're, like, a teenager – it's like, whoa, Master of Puppets is speaking to me. <laughs> I mean, it's cat. So, it's there's cat, no shame in that either. It's catnip for angry teens. It's, it it's, really is. It bugs your parents. It's songs about, like, death and drugs. <laughs> um, it's and, loud. It's fast. It's, yeah. Yeah. And I would just, like, I had my little my little Discman, and I'd put on my, yeah, I'd put in Master of Puppets and Ride the Lightning. Uh, and the Black Ohm, I mean, if, I, I think everyone likes a black album. I don't know. I do. Um, and uh, a lot it was... of I, I think everyone on this podcast agrees. A lot of people on the internet would call That's you true. call you a sellout right now. Uh, but it it you know it was like the first band I the first rock band that I really really liked and really got into. Um, and my I said my parents were not rock people, but they weren't like uh, they were never upset that I was buying metallic albums or whatever. Um, the friend of mine who got me into it was uh, they played football, so I listened to a lot of ACDC and Metallica, as you can imagine. Um, was it Beavis and Butthead? <laughs> well, and uh, <laughs> and he, you know, because of like he had an older brother and he had these, you know, these CDs, and so then I really got into. It. But of course, I'm obsessive and a nerd, so it was like, no, I'm owning all of them and I'm listening to all of them and I'm like pouring over it. Um, I do remember he dated a girl later on who told him that um, that rock and roll was devil music, and he got he burned and destroyed all his <laughs> CDs. And oh. I, I, um, well, I'm still upset about it. You like up- I'm still to this day like God, that's terrible to be like a 16 year old kid just destroying your CDs. Was this the town from Footloose? <laughs> <laughs> Tales of Symptom. Did Ke- did Kevin Bacon come to town and teach you to dance? We listen. We we know any any longtime listeners of Midnight Midnight Boys content know the Spooner stuff. It's wild. What a, I mean, we should just be impressed that they had CDs up there. Yeah, mm-hmm. but like, mm-hmm. what a what an argument from like 1958. <laughs> like, oh man, that I argument know. that argument was 40 years old at the time. I know. I know. I know. It's where's your ACDC live CD? I destroyed it. What? Do they? Do they also? Do they also get down on race records? <laughs> <laughs> did they uh, unplug their TV when it was Saturday Night Live time? <laughs> uh, Joe, what about you? What's your Metallica story? Uh, so for me, um, so I always like wonder about people and their stories because I think about like how old I was. When I make I- mine up. Yeah, well, we know that. <laughs> How old I was when I could like buy 
music and stuff and how old I was when I got to the point where I could uh, seek sort of like negotiate music independently. Okay. And and the Black Album came out in what? It was 92, right? It was like 91, 92. Yeah. So it's so also, we, sorry, uh, brief digression. It's one of those things that it's 91. like, it's hard to tell because this is the era where an album would come out and singles would still be going two, three years later. So like even in like yeah. 1993, 94, the black album was still huge. Yeah. yeah. Sad But True was a single released in 93, even though the album came out in 91. And I yeah. think that that's actually a good answer for the, the question I was going to raise, because even in my own memory, I'm like, oh, well, I loved um, Nirvana when Nevermind came out. And I think the the idea with me is like I liked, loved it when it came out because I remember seeing like the music video for um, In Bloom. Mm-hmm. and loving it so much. And and then I think in my head, like, well, that must have been soon after that album came out. But also, it seems like I would have been way too young when Nevermind actually came out to have, like, gotten into it right away. Sure. But that's but that's a good... I'm glad you mentioned that stuff because, yeah, I must have been, like, watching that two years after the album came out. Um, so for me, my first exposure to Metallica was from my dad, actually. And he... Uh, list, he uh, on Fridays he would uh, ruin TGIF <laughs> by playing one of three albums loud enough uh, where you could hear the music through our house's windows from I'd say 50 yards away outside and so I, I wouldn't be able to hear Family Matters or whatever <laughs> and Dad, I'm but, missing Urkel. Yeah, exactly. And I, I, so sometimes, sometimes I'd be upset, and then other times I would just like, he would just, he would come home from work on a Friday night, and crack open a Coors Light or something, and then just play one of these three albums in an obscene volume in the dark, <laughs> which at the time I was just like, well, that's just what dads do. And in hindsight, now I really understand what's wrong with me and why, because uh, I have the same impulses. So I would just sit and I would lay down on the floor in the room he was in and listen to them. And it was either Dark Side of the Moon, which was the first CD that he bought when he like bought this like really fancy speaker system, mm-hmm. which is a, a, a good choice, I guess, if you're yeah. dipping into the, when you finally got enough money where you could buy something cool like that. Yeah. And then uh, Black Sabbath Paranoid album. Okay. Or Metallica Black album. And it was one of those three. And that was the first time I heard Metallica in my life. And obviously, like, for a 10-year-old, I mean, that's just feels dangerous and scary. I And actually, in hindsight, the Paranoid album and Dark Side of the Moon, in a way, were actually scarier than yeah, the Black album, which is, in a way, them. an indictment of the changes Metallica made, right? But I mean, it's the most, like, corporate production process possible <laughs> for mm-hmm. that album. Exactly. Uh, and... Then, so I really liked it, but I really like, I mean, Enter Sandman, especially if you're a 10-year-old, I mean, does it get any better than that or sad but true? I or mean, Unforgiven. Unforgiven is and so then, cool. And then you get effing hyped every time a ball player uses that as his walk-up. Yep. Yeah, like Mariana Rivera famously with uh, Enter Sandman, which is like the only context, I think, where I hear Enter Sandman and I, th- I still think it's cool is when I'm watching a video of a pitcher run in. But other than that, like <laughs> most of the songs in the Black Album, I... I don't know that I can really even listen to them anymore because they're just so 
kind of boring to me now. Except Sad But True, that one kind of still bangs for me. I think that's still a big sports song, too. So so then I really liked it, but then I never, like, fairly quickly after that, I got into grunge, and then in, like, later middle school, and especially high school, like, I got, I I was listening to, like, punk music a lot, because that was when, kind of during that 90s revival of that. And so I, like, never really, like, dug into Metallica's 80s stuff that's actually good. Mm-hmm. And then and then when we were freshmen in high school is when Load came out. <laughs> and, I mean, like, as <laughs> as many flaws as the Black Album has, like, Load is just, like, the, the most dumb guy rock they probably ever made. Load is close to 80 minutes. <laughs> yeah. That tells you all you need to know. So it took me a really long time because the my musical journey kind of took me away from from my my idea of what metallica is which is mostly based on on 90 stuff and it wasn't until probably like late college or something that i like went back and listened to their first uh one two what their first four albums that are all really awesome okay and it, it just just blow me away i like i ride the lightning i think is probably still one of my favorite albums of all all time in like sort of the hard rock category i think it's like it's a masterpiece uh, I think Master of Puppets is too. So I, I, I weirdly kind of like, it's a formative uh, band for me. And when I was, you know, 10, like as an early entry into hard rock, but then it was a really long time until I went back to it again, which in my probably early adulthood and then spent more time with their actual good stuff. A really funny thing was in the mid to late nineties, uh, the twin cities had two, like metal hard rock stations and it was 93x and rock 100.3 and at the same time each night one station had maximum metallica where they played three metallica songs and the other station had mandatory metallica where they played three songs and more often than not it was the same song playing at the same time we had mandatory metallica on on laser 103 in milwaukee and and it, it, it just like the really funny thing about and we'll, I'm sure we'll dive into this, but if it, they never, they barely ever, ever played anything from the '80s during those mandatory Metallica things, except one. One was the only song that I remember them ever really playing for that. It was almost always stuff off of Load or the Black Album. The reason read- for that is because all those songs are seven or eight minutes long. That's yes. uh that's that's the sin if you're in radio. So let's let's dive into let's dive into this movie. Uh, the, the The background is as we, as you mentioned at the beginning, Metallica is a huge is a huge deal. But they had came out with Load and Reload, which were which were panned critically. They take a few years off. They get back together, but their bassist um, Jason Newstead had left already. He had, he had broken up out of the band, um, and so you kind of have the core three. Um, of Metallica with uh, James Hetfield, Lars Ulrich, and Kirk Hammett. And they decide that, I, I don't know if it's, it, it's not really clear if it's they or the studio or the record label or who, essentially was like, we're bringing in, <laughs> we're bringing in this guy. We're bringing in this Phil, Phil. Towel. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a lot of thoughts about Phil. I hope you guys do too. Who Phil Towel is a, uh, now I, I'm going to be clear on this. He is a therapist slash performance coach. I don't necessarily. Well, first off, there's absolutely nothing wrong with therapy, so I'm not dunking on that in any way. There is if you get it from Phil. 
Well, <laughs> uh, there's nothing wrong with therapy, but it should be by a psychologist or a psychiatrist, neither of which Phil is. Or a li- at least, a, is he a licensed therapist? He has a, he has an MA, but I don't I can't find out in what. Guys, this Phil, the Phil is a flim flam man. Absolute guys. big, an like, all time grifter, and I love it. So I, I texted this to Duff before I started watching the movie that I was excited to thread the needle between my my fervent and earnest belief that that therapy is extremely helpful, mm-hmm. while also wanting to make fun of Metallica for getting therapy. <laughs> and then as Phil talked for maybe ten seconds, and I was like, oh, thank God. They didn't actually get real therapy. They no. let a like, scam artist come into the studio. And now... This ther- I, this guy is a therapist the same way that uh, Trump's doctor is a doctor. Like that guy with the long hair. Who I was went, waiting for him to try to sell them a monorail. Yeah. he's yeah. <laughs> he, he just sits around in Cosby sweaters and says, like, every once in a while he'll say something that is actually the opposite of good therapeutic advice in that yes. like like Lars Ulrich will get up and start screaming in James Hetfield's <laughs> face and Phil will just say like that's good the conflict is good let's save that conflict I'm like no this is the opposite <laughs> this is not productive communication this is the exact I was expecting Phil to be like well let's use I statements or what are you feeling right now like I mean and I'm not I'm not making fun I'm like those are cliches for a reason but like phil's entire thing is just sit there and just kind of be a yes man (laughs) that's that's what's wild to me is it would be different if they're like all right well so like once a week you're the whole band's gonna go meet with the therapist and you're gonna talk about like you know what's going on that's not what this is phil's with them the entire time in like my favorite making forty thousand dollars a month. Yes, forty thousand. I a screamed month? when they revealed that forty thousand oh, dollars a month. Phil is making a half million dollars a year just to hang out with Metallica. <laughs> so it my seems favorite. like he's always there, but in that same scene, I think it's revealed that he goes there once a week. Yeah. Uh, well, the, yeah. It was. It was. You know. He. I think he was Which on a week and even off a more week. Wild. Okay. And on a week and off a week or something. I. He's hanging way, out in the studio with them, just nodding his head, reacting to what they're playing. Which oh, is god, wild. it was so funny when he was <laughs> pretending that he liked their music. Oh god. Do you know? Do you know who should have been their therapist? Is Lars Wizard Dad? Yes. Because that guy. That's the real hero. Of the that picture. guy does not pull any punches. He's like this. This is not good. <laughs> oh man, yeah, uh, yeah. So, so we have the we have the therapist comes in, um, and pretty quickly after that, um, well, they go to the Presidio to um, to to start recording, and then pretty quickly after that, James Hetfield checks himself in for rehab, of which is was about it quickly because ten- it's like it, that's all the summaries say, but wasn't it like di- into the one hundreds for the days they'd been working on this he album was, already? He was gone. Yeah. I mean, he was gone for a long time. I'm he not was sure. gone for like months, wasn't he? He yeah. was gone for like ten months, but I don't know how long they were recording before he left. Let's say a, a month, maybe. I thought it was more than that, but it, it doesn't matter. I guess the point is, uh, yeah, he's gone for ten months in rehab, which you know, I, I'm glad he he got so. I mean, he's relapsed a few times, but you know, that's it happens, and I, yeah, you know, we always, you know, I hope he's okay, but like um, he. And that those are like the most like that is when I think Phil becomes extremely toxic is after James Hatfield comes back. Yeah. 
and it's cl- then it becomes much more obvious that he w- he does not want them to get along because if they re- are recording this album forever, he gets paid forever. Forty thousand dollars. I mean, he ends up spending what, what a year and a half, two years with them almost. Yeah, this guy. <laughs> I, I bet when all is said and done, he made a million dollars off this project. It's yeah. I mean, he was going to he's going to tour ma- with them. Yes. <laughs> so. So I did. I don't know. I don't know if it's a deep dive, but I did. I looked into Phil. And God, I thank God because I've ran out of time to do that today. I'm so, so glad you did. An all-time grifter. I love so, oh my God. Uh, and it's even noted in his like in the Wikipedia for this movie that Phil uh, is not a psychiatrist or psychologist. Oh, okay. He's, he's, <laughs> he is employed by Metallica's management company Q Prime. So like. Okay. This is like Live Nation has just a therapist on staff or something. Because <laughs> um, he worked with another band. I he, think it might have been Rage. He worked with Rage. He also worked. Oh, wow. So get wow, this. Great job, Phil. You really fixed Rage. So <laughs> Phil is a former Chicago gang counselor. <laughs> Come on. He worked with the St. Louis Rams during the 99-2000 playoffs, which concluded with the Rams winning the Super Bowl. Uh, I didn't know oh, he must have been so happy with it when they won because he's like, I can coast on this forever. And he has unsuccessfully tried to keep Rage from breaking up. So I went to Phil's website, and it's just... <laughs> Phil's website is just like a WordPress template. It's not professionally set up. Uh, Phil has a blog. and oh, no. is, is it called The Towel Boy? <laughs> No. Is that really his Tow- name? Towel? Towley? Towel? I don't know if it's oh Towley, yeah. Maybe it's Towley. Um, so he has a bunch of blog posts, and in fairness, a lot of them are anti Trump, but it's just pure, like, boomer Facebook energy. <laughs> <laughs> so his latest one is from, I was just uh, two days ago, November 10th. And a lot of them are written as, like, poems. <laughs> oh my God. Um, and so he starts off with this thing from November 10th that says, I am you and you are me. Together we're humanity. <laughs> we are they and they are us. When harmonized, we are trust. <laughs> and it, go- it goes on like this. This dude is just a charlatan huckster. And so- I, I, and I kind of respect him. And one of my... <laughs> One of my favorite things in the doc is um, when they secretly get mad about, or not even secretly, but like when Bob Rock was like angry about all the folk, the posters that said focus. And he's like, it's like in the zone or something in like the that. zone or whatever. Yeah. And he's like, well, I wish you would tell me that. And he's like, what, instead of ripping them all down like I did, <laughs> by the way, uh, Bob Rock, who's that's his real name. Yes. I, I could not believe that when I looked uh, it up, I was like, his real name is Robert Rock. Bob Bob Rock is was the producer. Like we should mention he's the producer. He's I think producer. maybe Rob said that earlier, right? From kind Black of, Album through Saint Anger. Yes. Kind of another hanger on Yes Man, but he at least has some talent of some sort. Yeah, um, I mean it is I will say pretty big albums. It it is like legit pretty like nice when you have a producer that when your bassist leaves can be like, I'll just play the bass. Yeah. Well um, the, that I was laughing about that. Because it's like, well, you can't hear the bass in any of their albums, anyways. They generally, that is, um, I mean, it's, a, it's, yeah. Um, oh, oh. So the last thing I want to say about Phil, and I know I'm harping on Phil, but these are hilarious. Oh, I agree with you. I, I found, uh, for some reason, it's from the Phoenix New Times in 1998. Uh, Phil talked about 
the album and i guess he kept a diary during the entire process in 98 sorry 2008 oh 2008 um and the phoenix times just published a couple excerpts and just another example of how this dude has no therapeutic training so day three Today we attempted the time-tested trust-building exercise in which one member of the band allows no. himself to fall backward. No. Uh, Kirk Hammett caught James Hetfield, but quickly devolved when, when Hetfield pulled his arms away <laughs> at the last second and allowed Lars Ulrich to crash to the floor. <laughs> so, uh, uh, and then... Uh, Day 18. So today I suggested a scrapbooking exercise. Come on! Uh, Day 29. To build the confidence and build teamwork skills, he took them to play paintball against Jason Newstead's band Echo Brain. Oh my god! Why would that be a good idea? Why Um, isn't this in the dock? I don't know, but just these are all just terrible ideas. So when I was watching it, my... uh, Wife came down to my little podcasting lair, and she's like, "Oh, I've seen this." And then, as right after she said, "I've seen this," Phil came on screen, and she's like, "That guy has no idea what he's doing." <laughs> and my wife is a psychologist, so I was like, "I was like, oh, good," because I was going to spend all tomorrow night saying he doesn't know what he's doing, and now I feel like I have. Uh, I mean, Phil has the authority to do so. Phil emits big loser energy, big big divorce dad energy too. Oh, it's. It's. Um, I'm trying it, to think of like his meetings with the Rams, like what they must have been. Like one of the most talented teams of all time, he must have been like, um, Kurt. I think. I just think you should throw the ball to Isaac Bruce and Marshall Falk, and I think you just really need to trust those guys. And Kurt Warner is probably like, yeah, okay, I know. <laughs> like, I, I guarantee he did nothing at all to help the Rams win that Super Bowl. I'm trying to imagine him talking to Zach De La Roca, <laughs> like. <laughs> Has, and, uh, yeah, if anyone, if any listeners, or maybe, or I guess we could do the work. I would love to, because all those guys, or at least Tom Morello and Zach, are both pretty smart dudes, and and Tom Morello is pretty open and outspoken about stuff. Uh, like like more. By the more way, Tom Morello stuff. is a pull quote on Phil's site. <laughs> oh, is it? Oh, I was gonna say I'd love to hear if Tom Morello like had something. Uh, maybe you could take to Tom Morello's masterclass and find out. And that's another good point about Tom Rell. He seems very smart, but he also won't turn down making a buck. Nope. Nope. So, um, okay. So what happens in this documentary? Well, that's the big thing I just said is they bring Phil in. James leaves for um, lead singer. James Hetfield leads, leaves to go to uh, therapy and rehab. Um, he comes back. Uh, the band starts putting together this record, which one of the wild things that I think is like – fascinating about this is there is like incredible amount of access in this you know from like a really big band making a totally forgettable album which is like in some ways even more fascinating because it's not like you know footage of like you know springsteen and the east street band working on born to run or it it isn't like a troubled production like you know like exile on main street is like a famously like super dysfunctional recording process troubled release like kind of critical mixed critical reaction not the commercial success they wanted to be but in hindsight is a masterpiece sure instead yeah it's saint anger they they literally arguably the worst metallica album 
Definitely, uh, I, probably right. I, listen, I, I listened to the whole, I listened to the whole thing today, guys. Me, me it too. It sucks. Seventy five minutes long. I, it is awful. I listened to about half of it. I'm like, whatever. I'm done with this. It's, um, they literally could have picked any other Metallica album except for maybe the Blue Reed one, and it would have been. A, a more the, a more the lead one would have been fascinating in its own way i suppose <laughs> yeah that's true you, you at least would have gotten to see them working oh, what if phil and lou reed were together i would love to see that guy try to talk to lou reed <laughs> so yeah basically you picked the least the least loved metallica album and now you have a two-hour, 20-minute documentary about it and and so what we have is the rest of this is essentially uh a three men with very low emotional IQs, um, trying to work their way through this album, which takes a very long time. Um, and, you I know, think, story- if I can interrupt for a second, like, I yeah. think that you're, maybe you guys misread this, and I'll admit that I'm always, like, maybe overly forgiving of people. Um, but I watched this, and it, to me, it seemed like Kirk Hammett. I wouldn't. I don't know if it's fair to say he has low emotional IQ. It seemed to me, and, and again, maybe I'm projecting or, or misreading things. It seemed like he frequently knew what the right thing to do was, or knew, like, like seemed to know what was really going on and what was psychologically broken, and seemed to have the right impulses, but also knew that it, he, there's nothing he could say and nothing he could do because it's James's and Lars's band, and they would never listen to him anyways. I think and I think he almost functions as like the audience surrogate. Did you guys read it that way? I think um, that's exactly right to it because Kirk is the one who says what I think the big fan reaction was when this came out. And he's like, why the F aren't there any solos on this thing? Sure. And Lars has this like ham handed explanation. And Kirk's like, that's stupid, man. <laughs> yeah. And, and, mean, and it's a good point, and it shows why it, it's a waste of time for him to speak up, because he's right, and even at the end of it, they sort of, in their own stubborn, like, alpha male way, like, admit that he's right, but then, as obviously, then you listen to the album, and they totally ignored him. So, I, I was actually surprised. I think James Hetfield is actually very emotionally mature, much more than I expected. Um, he talks very openly about his addictions he's trying to be a family man um i honestly like i think that this documentary more than anything is about the near divorce of lars and james hetfield because because i don't think lars is the bad guy but lars is just the dummy in this movie like he's definitely the least emotionally intelligent and and i don't i'm not criticizing like rob i think you're you're right i i think that in a way it's i don't know i guess my disagreement is not so much that they have like a low emotional iq it's just that james james it's just a little bit it's just not quite high enough it seems or, like or, they frequently are just like almost there or maybe maybe a better way to put it is men trying to find their emotional like or trying yeah. to like mature their emotional iq yeah like I they're, mean, they're trying now for the first time to be like Oh, yeah. We can't. I guess keep we can't just like this forever. Yeah, we can't just keep getting hammered and rock and roll, and I that's mean, all. Here's what I think of about emotional intelligence. I mean, when they did this, these guys are like mid forties. Yeah, and James. I guess that's my point. And James Hetfield, he's like, "Hey, we're done at four every day, so that I can go have dinner with my kids." 
which is cool. That's awesome. Whereas yeah. Lars is like, I'm going to buy a bunch of crappy art and then sell it and drink myself silly while it's being sold. <laughs> like, that's the difference in the emotional maturity. Like, Lars deals with his, you know, self-hatred or aging or whatever by like, oh, I'm going I'm to be an art guy now. You know how there are wife guys? Lars is an art guy. I think well, he's a wife guy, too. I think he's had a handful. <laughs> I think he I think but that's what's so fascinating about the documentary is the rest of the band if I remember correctly wanted to get rid of that scene but Lars yeah. wanted to keep it in even though it makes him look like uh look like a moron because yeah. he's like because he's like but that's like who I am and that's honest and like and he even Lars like I think watching is like wow I look terrible but we have to leave it in because it's real and that's what makes my mind I'm just like whirling at this because on the one hand these guys are such we haven't even talked about the Napster thing yet, but these guys are frequently like no. so tone deaf, so like, uh, like so privileged. I mean, they're big, they're big dummies. Big, yeah, but, I mean, but, but then I mean, at the same time, they're into, they're they're like they really seem to have a genuine desire for authenticity. And while the whole point of that recording is like like James and Lars, their egos are just so out of control. But then they're also able to like set aside their ego and be like, well, we, we even though they, they could have just, they bought this documentary and they could have just buried it. Yeah. But they let it yeah. come out, even though it really makes them look bad sometimes, because on the other hand, they really want it to be honest. And I, I don't know, it, it's really like confusing to me. Well, I mean, they're, I mean, that's what's, you know, it's just weird about like seeing the stock and I mean, and I'm not, listen, they, they've made a career for themselves and they made a lot of money and I'm good for them. <laughs> but it is funny to be like, you know, it's like, well, Kirk's going surfing and lives on his ranch, and like, you know, James has his little, his little cool little cars he drives around, his little vintage cars. So and that, then... that scene of him like driving that hot rod, and then and then like it smash cuts to him being pulled over is so yeah. funny. And then you've got like you said Lars and his art, and you're just like, man, these guys are so out of touch and just trying to do anything they can to figure out what they're doing in their yeah, lives well, they, or to find some kind of meaning. It seems like that that happens so often with bands that that flame out is they they get into this okay, record, tour, record, tour, record, tour, sustained by booze, coke, booze, coke, booze, coke, and then they get to that point when they're about the age these guys are or yeah. or oftentimes earlier like they're, they're, they came around when bands could just last forever. Uh, but the, and, and, and the, they get to that point where, like, my life is completely empty and totally revolves around this band, and I'm mm-hmm. completely unable to have a family or anything outside of it. Like, what else? What am I going to do? I can't be in the doing band stuff all the time anymore. But I've never, in my, you know, the years when most of us cultivate those other interests, you know, your 20s and your 30s. Yeah, they spent all those years just in that Metallica cycle the whole time, and it seems like they just cannot figure it out. Kirk seems like the closest to like I having, agree. but yeah, Kirk is just such sure. a sweet, gentle soul. I, I came out of this loving him even more. Oh, Kirk, he's definitely like I mean, he's just the shaman who's just like, guys, let's not hammer on each other. Let's hammer it out in the studio. And, and, and just like, can we just rock? And like, and, and not for nothing. Kirk is a replacement. Mm-hmm. So that kind of yeah. lends energy to that. Um, and I wanted to say, originally, 
uh, the same way that Joe went into this looking forward to dunking on Metallica, I was looking forward to dunking on Dave Mustaine. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, Dave Mustaine, and he he surprised me because he yeah. had a really emotionally mature, uh, vulnerable scene. He's only Very in, vulnerable. He's only in it for a little bit. and That's I'm thanks like, to Phil, by the way. Yeah, all Phil. <laughs> And so, well, Phil brings so to put it in context. Phil br- makes brings in Dave Mustaine to talk to Lars. To talk to Lars. I wonder was that when James was already in rehab? I think maybe, so. Maybe that so was. I was wondering kill. why James wasn't there when I was thinking back on it today, but I couldn't remember if he had already gone into rehab. I don't think Kirk was there either. I really so, think it was just Lars. Just and, him and Lars, yeah. And they don't. I mean, they kind of get at this, but Dave Mustaine famously was. Uh, Listen, you know you have an alcohol problem when you're fired from Metallica in, in the. <laughs> in the 80s um and i'm sure that personality was part of that as well because he's another alpha so yeah dave mustaine was fired and went on to do megadeth and megadeth has some really kick-ass stuff guys uh oh yeah megadeth's awesome and uh, but he brings it up he's like i and that's what's so sad about it he like one of the biggest I mean, they're in the big, one of the great metal bands of all time, but still not Metallica. Yeah. Well, so that's what's that's what's interesting, right? You talk about like we look at these guys, Metallica, and they're like in their you know what are forties or fifties in this, and they're trying to figure out find meaning in their life, and yet everyone who's not in Metallica is like, God, I wish I was in Metallica. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's yeah, wow. And it's it's funny because it's hard to remember, but for a long time, Dave Mustaine was pretty cool and then uh we had elected a black president and his brain just broke <laughs> yeah I, when Did i was you... watching his that scene i was like god this is like if you took uh like christopher guest from spinal tap and gave him like a really sad scene because yeah you could tell he's so stupid yeah. and he also looks like a guy from spinal tap like his <laughs> look right says, his even moment of like when he's talking about like lars man the only time we've ever connected. Remember that time we dug that hole and tried smoking hash through it? Through the dirt? Yeah. I was just I, like, I was like, I was like, that's your story? I, 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 I was, was like, just thinking, is Rob Reiner filming this? I I wanted ba- I wanted more deeds because I'm like, wait, how did that work? <laughs> did they that try to build story. a bong out of a hole or something? Like why the uh. why the hole? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, digging holes is cool when you're a little boy, but I'm assuming they were older than that. I mean, I'm assuming they were in their 20s. And they were mass- in a rock band. Yeah, <laughs> that was yeah they old. were they were living together and in a rock band, and I guess they dug a hole. I guess a rock band like 25 is like a normal human's 13. That might be true. <laughs> so I, I, I was recently watching uh, a talk show thing with... Uh, my good surrogate dad, Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. And he was talking about, he's a, he's like, you know, rock and roll is the only career where you can take the dudes you were friends with in high school and you're going to work with these dudes for, if you're lucky, 40, 50 years. Yeah, that is wild. And yeah. the, uh, and the reason I think that the only time that works well is when you have just one alpha male. And you have someone calling the shots. And I know that with Springsteen, and I've heard the same thing with like Tom Petty and uh, especially Megadeth with Dave Mustaine, is that to a certain degree, like they're friends, but there's never any question about who makes the decisions. Yeah. And with Metallica, like it just, I think one of the reasons it falls apart is because you have 
two big dummies who can't work together. Well, and then even coming into this, this idea that like, they, they were talking about like normally like Lars and James would like write songs and then they'd get together in a studio and then make music. And this are like, we didn't come with anything this time, just all going to come organically out of the studio. I'm like, well, that's stupid. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I mean, for Metallica, it's definitely really stupid. Uh, but like, but like what's sad about it and that that kind of moved me, too, because it seemed like like Kirk was really excited about it. When they yeah. when he talks about it, because you could tell, like, I wonder the degree to which he really believed this, because he must have at that point, he's not that stupid, but he must have. I, I bet at some level he thought like maybe they'll finally like listen to more of the things I want to do, and then and then he, he is right about the core thing that sucks about Saint Anger, and they ignore him. Yeah, uh, it's such a well, bummer. I mean, that's the other thing that's like f- kind of funny is like I said, Saint Anger is not a good album, and Metallica, you know for all all the great music they gave us it's not lyrically what's strong and they're just like you know like they're just got their little notepads and they're like your your lifestyle determines your death style <laughs> they're yeah, like writing yeah. this stuff down you're like oh my god like this is like a movie we can't really go beat by beat through because that it would be i don't uh, think we have anything else to say they yeah, get a i basis. guess the only other thing i think we didn't really get into is like them hiring their replacement bassist i think is the yeah. other big event which I don't know. I I thought it would be more int- like, I just felt really bad for their new bassist mostly. Except for, <laughs> for like the when he was walking into, yeah, although he's still the, yeah, the, the band, million dollars so. seems kind of cool. Well, but that was I, that was what I was gonna bring up. I thought that scene was so funny. They're like, we're gonna give you a million dollars, and like this guy seems, and I have no idea what he's actually like. But in all these scenes, he just also he seems kind of like a Kirk Hammett guy, where he's just like, let's just play music, man, and he's really happy to oh. be there. And they're like, yeah. we're going to give you a million dollars, and he's like, oh, my God, and he's so moved. And then they're like, yeah, it's an advance on your future earnings. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Like, they that, didn't actually give him a million dollars. They just gave him a million dollar that advance is, on their future earnings. I was like, like, oh, my God, that's so funny. That's a very Lars move right there. Yeah. So I know we've talked a lot about him, but how hilarious was the scene with Phil, where they more or less tell Phil that his services won't be needed anymore. Oh, and he tries to manipulate them into keeping him around with him, did, like using and, therapist speak. It's like, oh, that this is so dark. And and, and, and the, he also he backtracks because they're like, Well, Phil, we know that you moved out. He was like, No, it's not that's not for sure. I'd move out here. <laughs> and actually, you know, I actually that moment I kind of enjoyed because obviously the James Large relationship is 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 a, a tough one. And you could tell that when Hetfield is telling him this, like, hey, you know, I think we're going to let you go, and he's doing it his, like, passive way, Lars is in the background just, like, you could tell just holding his tongue and waiting, like, how long do I have to wait until I go off on him? (laughs) Yeah, because, like, (laughs) he's just waiting for James to, like, chicken out. Yep, and then finally when the moment comes, he's like, all right, time to be Lars. (laughs) I can't remember what he says, though. Uh he essentially I, just kind of calls them on what you were saying. Like, you just keep changing the rules so you can stay. Yeah, is, yeah. <laughs> is is the reason that Metallica t- didn't break up is because they unified when they figured out Phil was a con man? <laughs> yeah, so in a way, <laughs> Phil saved them. He did. He did. He was right then. He did save them. Um, uh, so this is uh, a question we have here. Duff, I think you're the best one to answer this. Um should embar- should Metallica be embarrassed about this? And and if so, how much? I mean, not as much as the album itself. <laughs> yeah. I'm with you. So so here's here's my my take on this movie. I admire this movie more than I like it. I think that it's uh 
like we've said, it's 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 brave to put this out there, and mm-hmm. it's a cool concept. It, it would have been a better concept if they'd gotten an actual therapist. <laughs> um, would, would would it have been a better film if they had a real therapist? Uh, do you think? I don't know. If I, it would what if real therapists let a camera in? Yeah, that's true. Um, well, if think, it was between being working with Metallica, and not working with Metallica, uh, they probably would have let it in. Yeah, my my thing about this movie is so long. It needs to be uh, this. To me, this is a ninety-minute movie that should be on a box set for Saint Anger. Like, I, so, it's bizarre that this was a theatrical release. And it and it was for a while. It was going to be like a like a a reality show. Yeah, or I just think, like the promo material. Too. Oh my I god! Think that was the if they. Idea. If this were like a keeping up with the Kardashian style e show where every week Phil just did some nonsense, <laughs> that would be appointment viewing. I mean, because they were looking at the Osbournes and being like, "We should, we could do something like that." Yeah. They would have broke it up for sure if they would have done yeah. that. So, so I, I mean, I, I'm glad I saw this, and I think it's different. It's much different than you know. It's like Joe said, it could have like been that stupid Eagles documentary, which is vastly entertaining, but it's just a bunch of talking headshots about, you know, sure. he said, she said, whatever. So I, I don't know how good of a documentary this is. It's not bad. I, it mixed results for me. So I don't think the movie itself is embarrassing. The album is way more embarrassing. I, it's weird because I kind of feel like, in some ways. <sighs> like watching this i'm really glad it exists because i think it's fascinating we just don't normally get that sort of access right access and the fact that joe mentioned that they like metallica like this isn't like a hit job on metallica they own this they could have done anything they wanted to. and they bought it after it was done yeah i'm pretty sure so it's not like they they owned the rights from the beginning the the those uh uh uh, berlinger berlinger and sanofsky i've got their names right right I, who yeah. I'm big fans of, by the way. They finished this, and then Metallica bought it <laughs> for four yeah. over four million dollars. The story, the story of how they uh, got acquainted with Metallica is pretty interesting. I guess those it's from guys, the West Memphis Three stuff, right? Yeah, they did a, a West Memphis Three movie, oh, that's and they what they're from. and they asked. Um, they wanted to use Metallica songs, and Metallica ended up liking the movie. It's like, hey, you can use our songs for free. Yeah, and then. Metallica was talking about making this movie. It's like, let's call those guys. So I think that's cool. So just so, to tell the audience, uh, our, our listeners, they did the three Paradise Lost documentaries about the West Memphis Three, which are masterpieces in my opinion. Like, they're very, very good. And and yeah. I I loved every second of this movie. I I I didn't think it was too long. I I loved it. I, I thought it was awesome. Uh, well, the the thing we we haven't mentioned that I, I I guess I need to mention along with this question is, I'm like I said, I'm glad this exists. Um, even though what had to exist for this to exist is St. Anger, which is terrible. <laughs> but it, in some ways, it kind of like watching this again and, and thinking about like, this is right after the Napster thing. Yeah. And at the time I was mad about it too, but part of me now is like, God, were they, I mean, like, were they right though? Because don't you want a big band and not to be the one that come out? Like, don't you need a band with power to be the one that comes out to be like, stop stealing our music? Can it really work if it's some indie band that's like, hey, guys, part of it is we really need this. I think I do feel a little bad for Lars because part of it is who at, you know, back in 1999, 2000, who knew what file sharing and the Internet was going to become? 
Yeah. So, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. But the other thing I'll say is that when you're a heavy metal band and your whole thing is all F the system and whatnot, it's not a good look yeah. for when you get the corporate attorneys out and start. I agree. I agree. But is it, the, but was, is it still the right thing? I, outside of like, is it a good look well, to do it? Legally right? I mean, yeah. That's legally they were in the right. But even morally to some level, right? Because now, like, you know, it's common to, like, talk I, about how, how lame it is how Spotify doesn't pay its artists and stuff. And that's true. Yeah. But now, on the other hand, we like to, like, dunk on the big band that actually stood up for against file sharing because they didn't let us get stuff for free. So I think I would have more sympathy if I think they actually went after individual people. They did. Um, yes. which, which is, that's not cool. You know, if you're a big, I think, I think my thing is you have to recognize the power structures, and if they wanted to go and rag on ISPs or, you know, at the time America Online or someone like that, I would say that's cool. Mm-hmm. But when you start going, I just remember there were so many stories about, you know, like someone's grandmother would get a five-digit bill or a lawsuit because someone's their grandkid was on the computer like i'm not even making that up yeah no i know i know it's and that's just come on that's that's an awful move yeah i don't know if we fully put this into context but i guess to put it in context this film they start filming soon after lars ulrich metallica as a band went after napster but lars is sort of the guy the most outspoken member and Mm -hmm. he appears before the senate uh he famously i think was in the mtv music awards did like a skit hammering like college kids for stealing music and stuff uh and and i think i he's the worst possible messenger for this because a yes. like metallica is the biggest what the second biggest band in the world after you two would you say i mean at that point they yeah they yeah that sounds about right they're super rich just I mean, they they're not hurting <laughs> yeah and 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 that and, and bring up spotify is really fascinating because as soon as file sharing like as soon as that genie comes out of the bottle like people for the most part they're not gonna pay 10 <laughs> well and that's what's funny is before this and part of what drives it is like so many stores are just gouging customers oh yeah the, the 20 dollars sam goody stuff yeah if you live like where rob lived where your your options for where you can buy a cd are so limited like you might have to go to the mall and spend 17 dollars for absolutely i mean i lived in a, where you went i lived in a suburb and had tons of choices and i still on average ended up spending like the best was like 13 dollars. yeah 12 or 13 was the best i could do and and okay that sucks really bad and then then napster comes along now the genie's out of the bottle you're never going to get people to go back to that and now the system that's replaced it is spotify makes 99.999 percent of every dollar you spend on your music uh, and the artists barely get anything. Now, do they get more than they got from file sharing? I guess technically, but they're still making next to nothing. And I'm not blaming Metallica, I guess, for that, but it's just yeah. fascinating how how the history played out is he takes down this system, but the bands don't make money in the what comes out of its wake. They, they just, no. uh, just a system emerges where the the... The, these few like streaming giants and then to a lesser extent the record companies make money off of it and the bands just get absolute scraps so um 
sorry, go ahead, I get, go. we're going go. starting to go long, so I'm going to bring us back to like the embarrassing thing. the The quote that I think a lot of people mentioned is the new Jason Newstead quote, where he he says like them getting a therapist was really effing lame and weak. Mm-hmm. I didn't really come out of this thinking that that decision was lame and weak at all. They just hired the wrong guy. I'm, I also think like Newstead seems me to me like a way sadder figure than any of the oh, three yeah. Metallica figures. He's another big dummy. <laughs> <laughs> like, and there's this moment that I actually I found fascinating in it, where like I actually thought it was really nice. Like his brain, his brain, his brain, his, band, <laughs> his, brain, his band Echo Brain or Echo whatever brain. was playing, and like the fact that like Lars and Kirk went to it, I thought was like a really cool thing. And then he blows them off. And then he blows them off, and I was like, "God, dude!" I wonder. If there's, like, I wonder if there's more to that story. But the whole Newstead uh, quitting or being fired—it's one of those things where everyone's an unreliable narrator, and part of that is just because there were so many drugs and so much alcohol involved. But I think yeah. Newstead, or excuse me, not Newstead, Hetfield is like pretty honest about it in the movie, where he's just like, "I my thing is when I love something, I I smother it." And he seems pretty, like, forthright. Like, I was just threatened by him wanting to do something else, and yeah. I couldn't handle it. Yeah. And, yeah. and and he seems pretty forthright that that's he, what's he, – because he psychologically got that's issues. That's true. The, the growth award definitely goes towards Hetfield in this documentary. So another thing that we that we were going to bring up is, like, they, they talk about – so another one of my favorite, like, rock dude things – when bands are like get more money than they know what to do with is they start like recording in exotic locations, like hoping it'll spark something. Yep. You know, like when, uh, like new order recorded in, I think they went to Spain or something to record an album, uh, the Rolling Stones in, in France. Although part of that was like tax avoidance. Right. I think probably. Yeah. And maybe they got better heroin down there or something. A lot of, a lot of going to Europe and castles. Yeah. Castles in haunted places. Uh, like uh, Trent Reznor doing a downward spiral where, uh, Sharon Tate got killed. That's super weird, but yes. Well, that was like over 20 years after that. I know, but still. And I think, (laughs) I, I don't know if they record there, but I know Jimmy Page bought Alistair Crowley's house. Oh my God. (laughs) And, uh, and like, I think, I mean, and, and it's not always bands that are like creatively bankrupt that are doing it. Like a lot of awesome albums came out of this impulse, like, okay, computer. Yeah. Okay. Computer was Jane Seymour's like mansion. Yeah. Which it's, is wild to me that Jane Seymour was like, her. Do- Dr. Quinn. Yeah. Dr. Quinn medicine woman's like, go ahead, band, make your record, feed the cat. Uh, <laughs> uh, so <laughs> what, what would be if you, so you're in one of the biggest bands in the world you're going to record about the a new album. podcast ever. <laughs> sure, whatever. So, uh, so Spotify we're... Spotify bought our podcast and just gave us piles of money. Let's so, see what... we're going to record like we're going to do like a a whole like themed season but people are actually going to listen to it maybe. Okay. Where cool. where's your what's your dream recording location? Well, here's go cuz I wanted to go somewhere beautiful. I want to go somewhere inspired where I could be inspired at or maybe some of the you know, uh cornerstones of my upbringing exist i'm not going very far from the presidio which is where uh the uh metallica started at uh i'm having spotify they're gonna buy that yellow painted ladies house in san francisco (laughs) you know what i'm talking about the painted ladies in san francisco the like those five like houses that like overlook the park oh like the full house house right the full house yeah yeah Um, yeah that's solid. Uh, they're buying the yellow house, and uh, we're we're holding up there, and we're recording our next season. And there's All something right. so like cursed 
about us taking millions from Spotify and choosing to like to like absorb one of the few houses in San Francisco to contribute to the housing shortage. We'll just be there for like six hours a day bickering about something and recording a four podcast hours, about to like, four. a podcast about like uh <laughs> like John Candy's uh non hits or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Duff, you ready? Yeah. That's it. I mean, I would, yeah. I would happily go uh, there. By the way, don't. We're get calling wrong. the season sour candies. <laughs> so, I tried to think. This is one of those situations where the first answer that comes into your head is actually the right one, even though it seems super obvious. Um, and I actually thought I kept thinking, I'm like, oh, there's got to be a better or a more original one. But uh, I am keeping it very close to home and guys i think we can get this at a song nowadays oh no <laughs> we're going to tommy bartlett's robot world <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe, wisconsin dells maybe all of the wisconsin dells we'll go to like the pirates cove we are renting golf. out the entire drag that noah's ark is on yep we'll we'll go play mini golf we'll do the tommy bartlett show when we get mad at each other we'll just drive around the military ducks on our own and oh my <laughs> when one God. of us throws a fit they'll just get on a go-kart and tool around a go-kart track yep oh my god <laughs> that's a good answer that's great so for me okay so we've bands have gone to mountains bands have <laughs> gone to deserts bands have gone to castles uh albums have been recorded in prisons the jungle, every climate, but you know what hasn't been done yet. Are we going to sea? We are going to record it in a submarine. Ooh, we are oh, going God. under the sea to 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 my most like boomer dad, uh, greatest generation dad interest, uh, which is I will watch anything that's in a submarine. You know I'm claustrophobic, right? You're... <laughs> Have you ever been in a submarine? Yeah, it's terrible. It's awesome. I, we're going <laughs> under the sea. We're we're uh. we're. Gonna, maybe we could get uh, James Cameron to be a guest if we You're, tell him it's going to be in the summer. I'm only going to be able to record in that 20-minute window where the Xanax wears off before I need another <laughs> one. We we um, have an episode that will be out this week on our, for our Patreon feed where uh, continuing to rock docs, even though it's not actually documented. Listen, we make our own rules. We have our good friend of the show, Jim, on, and we're talking about Oliver Stone's The Doors. A lot a lot more rock and roll talk, a lot of talk about The Doors. And you can go to the Patreon.com. Speaking of big dummies. Boys. <laughs> yeah, speaking of big dummies, The Doors. Um, <laughs> so we have that. And then next week, what are we talking about, Joe? Uh, we're, okay, so here we're going. I, I'm hoping to like maybe learn more because we're going to look at this. This is more of like a concert slash backstage documentary, Madonna, Truth or Dare. I've never seen it. I have honestly little to no interest in Madonna uh, and sort of pop music in general. But I'm, I'm really going to go into this with an open mind and I'm hoping I can I can learn more about Madonna and uh, maybe develop more of an appreciation of her music. Not that I don't like it. Like, if you play a Madonna song, I almost always like it. I just never really go out of my way to listen to it. All right, guys. Well, we will be back next week talking about Madonna, Truth or Dare. And like I said, the Doors Patreon episode is there for you. And uh, (laughs) And we're going to play Truth or Dare during the episode. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) 